welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we talk with Melanie Fallick, an independent writer, editor, creative consultant, and lifelong maker who lives in the Hudson Valley in New York. Making things, handwork, and creativity were avidly fostered by Melanie's parents in their household growing up. And with a natural talent for writing, Melanie began a career in publishing and soon combined it with a passion for knitting and other forms of handwork. As a result, she has written and helped other authors create many beautiful how-to and literary nonfiction works. This includes her first book, The Influential Knitting in America, and her most recent book, Making a Life, Working by Hand, and Discovering the Life You Were Meant to Live, an exploration into the meaning of making in today's world. She takes us on the journey she went through to write Making a Life. We also talk about her grandmother's knitting, how knitting can be a lens through which we learn about women's lives, and why knitting and all forms of handwork are so much more than a means to an end. Please enjoy our engaging Why Make conversation with Melanie Fallick. We'd like to welcome you to the Why Make podcast. Yeah, welcome to Why Make. And start with the first Why Make question, the Why Make softball, which is, what is your first memory of making something? So my first memory is drawing birthday cakes, um, which I, my memory, they were on really big pieces of paper, like sort of newsprint that was in a pad. And it seemed really special that I had this what appeared to me to be like a super big pad of paper, like made it important. Although I wonder now how big the pad was because I was probably, I was little. (laughs) But I remember making like the frosting and the candles um, and drawing in pencil. And is that a theme that continued on for a while, drawing or? No, not really. (laughs) I think I do remember in kindergarten drawing like people with triangular bodies and like sticks for arms and legs. And then I guess I wasn't doing it as well as the other kids. And so I brought it home and asked my dad and he just said like people aren't triangles. And so he drew like a real human body and he was really, really good. And then I stopped drawing (laughs) because I couldn't draw like that. So I guess your dad was not an abstract expressionist. (laughs) No, not at that point, at least. Um, He he just wanted to show me and I guess model like how I could learn to draw what a body really looked like. And I didn't take to that because I couldn't do it like he could. (laughs) So what was your um, your family's background? Were your parents artists? I mean, you said you said your your dad drew really well. Yeah, yeah. My, you know, my father mostly taught architecture and engineering when once I was born. Before that, he had worked in aerospace. Um, and my mom was a when I was little was a teacher of history and psychology. And then as I got older, she became a psychotherapist. But handwork, creativity, like making stuff, that was 
completely normal in my house. It wasn't, it was just ordinary. That's what people did. Like my parents played tennis. My father did gardening and landscaping and did painting and drawing and ultimately pottery and sculpture. My mom sewed my clothes and sometimes knitted or crocheted. It wasn't like I know it never sort of stuck out as even being a hobby. It was just, you know, they had their work, they had their pleasures and, you know, sometimes they, they overlapped, but it was mm -hmm. just part of being a person. There was the one thing that probably was um, different than a lot of households was there was um, definitely uh, attention paid to um, workmanship and aesthetics. And that was my dad. That was really, really important to him. And so he would take me to like galleries or even just regular stores and like hold something and point out the aesthetics of it or the quality of the workmanship. And so that was kind of an ongoing thing. And, um, you know, he definitely collected the work of different people um, for his own pleasure. I mean, he just loved marveling at people's creativity mm -hmm. and workmanship and, and really doing creative things himself. Where did you grow up? In the suburbs of New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> not, not a creative haven, um, <laughs> but, but definitely the place that, you know, my parents grew up in New York City and, mm -hmm. you know, and worked in New York City and then moved to the suburbs to raise yeah. their children. So you were close to a creative haven. You could go into the city and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was an hour on the bus. Oh, wow. So did your... Did your dad make any of those wonderful little architectural models growing up? I mean, did he make those? He made all sorts of things. I don't, you mean like the furniture and stuff or like the houses and? Yeah, the houses and the landscapes, the, the, the incredible structures out of foam core and, <laughs> yep. and balsa wood. Like building models. I'm not I mean. sure if he did that. Um, probably. I mean, well, he probably did, but I don't really remember that. I do remember because he was teaching architecture, some of his students coming to the house. And I remember one student like made me furniture for my dollhouse out of cardboard that was from like, you know, when you sent shirts, men's shirts to the dry cleaner back then, they would come back with this like rectangular piece of cardboard that I guess kept it in form. And if you were really lucky, the cardboard would be like a color instead of just that gray, it would be like mm -hmm. blue or red. And the student made like a couch and I can't remember a table for my dollhouse. So I just thought that was like the most incredible thing. And to this day, like I always, and I don't even know if architecture students can or interior design students can even still do this. But back then I think that was like normal part, you know, building those structures. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. That was one of my big ahas as a kid because my father's office, although he wasn't an architect, was in an architecture building at Carnegie Mellon University, and there was always these incredible student models. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, it was, a, it was a new world. It was like access into this wonderful miniature world. And of course, you know, I wish I had a dollhouse. I would have loved to have a dollhouse as a kid. Yeah. I mean, it's just the whole, the, the, that just the whole, that, you know, imaginative quality of creating your own little, universe yeah my dad found in the yeah. my dad did make this was separate from architecture and engineering but he was hired to design and make toys for um can't remember tinker toys and also 
which were those wooden ones. Mm -hmm. And then there were ones, I forget what they're called, electros. They were like metal pieces. So like our family room would have like... An erector set. Yeah, erector sets. <laughs> erector sets are great. <laughs> yeah. Erector sets. There was three wonderful toys I had as a kid. Lincoln Logs, mm -hmm. erector set, and um, the uh, Tinker Toys. Yeah. Yeah. So he was hired to like design and make them and... I just remember our family room would be like a three foot tall toy, like just in there for like a really long time while it was being assembled. And then he, I don't know how he shipped it. I, I don't remember that. Or I think he might have had to write out the directions, you know, like sketch out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Eventually you end up in publishing, though. How do, what's the what's the journey to publishing? So, um, I was throughout my childhood, I was always praised for writing, you know, my ability to write, which was just came naturally to me, I guess. And that, and then when you get praised for something, you like to do it. So you continue to do it and you get better at it. So that's probably what compelled me to consider a career in publishing. I, in college, I studied French and linguistics and I thought I was going to travel the world teaching English because I just really wanted to travel. And, um, I did travel quite a lot, but I didn't end up teaching English. So in my twenties, I moved to New York City and decided to try to work in publishing. So that's where I ended up first working for a food magazine. And then I started knitting, which I had dabbled in as a child, but then got really involved in. And then I decided that I wanted to combine my passion for knitting with my career in publishing. So then the two started to merge. In terms of knitting, I was really interested in the process and the technique, but also the way it could be used as a lens for learning more about people's lives, but in particular women's lives throughout the world. So again, it went back to this idea of like traveling and learning about different cultures, but doing that through knitting and then that expanded to different forms of needlework and then just different forms of handwork overall. So that was my interest. And so that I sort of figured out how to meld that with my careers. Really early on, I actually wrote a book called Knitting in America, um, which was kind of a big coffee table book in which I wrote for which I wrote profiles of knitters and people who raised animals and plants for fiber. And so I got to travel around the country with a photographer and interview people and write about people. And um, What year did that come out? 1996. So it was a long time ago. Um, but that book had a lot of attention. And I, I, think, I think I went on a 17-city book tour. And um, Back when coffee table books were a real thing. Yeah, they were a real thing. And at the time, there was a lot of attention paid to like European knitwear designers in the handwork community and not so much American. And then in addition, there was still this idea that, you know, nobody knit or there was a lot of like ageism and sexism around it. And, you know, I was this young woman discovering knitting and meeting extraordinary people of all ages who had sort of found knitting and I felt like it was like this underground movement that I was so lucky to be part of. And so I wanted to kind of work on writing the stereotype of who knitters are and why they do what they do. Um, so that book really put me on the map in the knitting world. It kind of came out before, I mean, I became familiar with it like 
with uh, Stitch and Bitch starting and hearing about all the... Yeah, it was prior to Stitch and Bitch. And it was right... Yeah, it was right before, because that was like in the early aughts when that kind of took off, it, based on my knowledge of my friends doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was, I think, it was still kind of an underground movement, but there was kind of an interest. And I remember the publicist um, who handled my book tour saying, like, every place that she sent me and all of the I mean I was I did a lot of radio interviews and mm -hmm. TV shows and newspaper interviews and she just had to find the knitter on staff and pitch it to that person and you know in the beginning surprisingly to her like she could find a knitter and the knitter was so excited because we got so little attention and it was this novelty of course once I arrive like for example at a tv station or a newspaper office i would people would say like literally say like oh i thought you were you look different than i expected and i remember the woman at usa today said i said well what did you expect and she she if my memory is correct she actually did expect like a lady with a gray bun huh. <laughs> it's like you don't look like a knitter <laughs> yeah i mean to this day uh, People who, you know, people who write articles about knitting or publicists who pitch it um, in press releases who are not makers, and particularly not knitters, will say, it's not your grandma's knitting. And I just hate that because it is my grandmother's knitting and it's my knitting and it's everybody's knitting. And I think just to sort of put something down by saying it's not your grandma's knitting or it's not your grandma's crocheting or, you know, is. Yeah, it's your grandma's knitting taken to the next level. Well, no, I mean, many grandmas knit at a very high level, you know, it, it's, it's just passing on the torch. And if you think about a grandma as in this stereotypical way as like rocking on her rocking chair on the porch, hey, I aspire to that. And what might she have been thinking about and think about all the grandchildren who would come running up to the porch and experience her wisdom or her love. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm romanticizing it. I'm not saying every... No, but I've, I've experienced it too with my grandmother's quilting. And then yeah. my, my aunts are doing the same thing and they are doing it as, as informed by my grandmother Yeah, and doing it, some of the stuff she's doing and then better but based on the heritage of it. So it's, it, it works across, I guess we're talking about textiles and fabrics or mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing how it reaches through like that. Right. And, and even now, you know, I have um, textiles that came from my grandmother on my father's side, a sweater that she knit for my father. And she died when I was like one year old. I mean, my father kept that sweater in perfect condition for you know, over 50 years. And um, I have a tablecloth she sewed. I have stuff that my, gra my maternal grandmother made. Um, and those things carry so much emotion and love and heritage. And those are the things, you know, if the house is burning down, that matter. Yeah. There's so much energy in those. Yeah. And to, and to move the ball, you know, another... 20 years forward, my mom, who was a fiber artist, uh, one of the last projects she did before she died was a massive yarn bombing project in Pittsburgh called Knit the Bridge. Oh, I heard about that. 
Yeah, they, they, I think it was the Seventh Avenue Bridge in Pittsburgh, and they knitted it. Mm -hmm. They knitted the superstructure from one end to the next. And it was largely um, led by young women who were 50 years younger than my mom. And um, each section of the bridge, a different artist knit. And then all the um, essentially um, blankets um, were then all donated to various, uh, you know, various charities in the in the community, and it was just absolutely wonderful. It was it was subversive, it was artistic, and yet it was using a, a, an ancient skill. and And my mom was probably one of the most senior people doing it. That's great. And then the actually, I would imagine that then she was able to meet all different kinds of people exactly from different backgrounds and different age groups and they could bond over knitting and then learn about each other further because they had this common way of connecting yeah and, it, and it, there were there were plenty of men involved in the project and it was uh so i mean knitting has definitely uh maybe you started the revolution in 1996 uh, i think i felt it you know i felt the impulse you were part of the vanguard that that kind of pushed it into coffee table books and beyond. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I know that to this day, a lot of women still, you know, contact me or come to see me at an event and talk about the influence that that book had on them in terms of making them realize that this was a possibility that that they could maybe make a career out of knitting or something they love, or they could give it more respect in their own minds or they could just in, engage in it more fully because somehow the book legitimized it for them and and opened their eyes to sort of more ways to to celebrate it in their own lives so moving on to 2019 and you know this sort of more or less the the topic mm -hmm. that we're going to address today you wrote a book called making a life mm -hmm. and i think the main thesis and correct me if i'm wrong is you know, why do we make things by hand? But more importantly, why do we make them beautiful? So if you could tell us a little about that project and how you laid it out and the creation of it. Yeah, I think those two questions, those are the two questions that were the basis of my explorations for that book. But I think the thesis was more making by hand remains vital and valuable in the modern world because it has the power to give our lives authenticity and meaning. And so my exploration was traveling in a similar way that I did for Knitting in America, although this time I didn't limit my travels to America, and spending time with makers and um, talking to them about their lives, their handwork, and and why we continue to make by hand in the modern world and why it matters. So the people featured in the book work in a lot of different kinds of media, but they have this commonality of challenging this status quo and building a life for themselves based on their sort of belief in their handwork as a pathway to whatever their version of success might be. When you covered a lot of, of different ground too, I mean, I was, well, Eric and I were both attracted to different aspects of the book. Like I, I saw Nikki McClure in there and, mm -hmm. and her partner um, and, you know, her and, and, and JT Scott, 
are people that I'm familiar with and I love her calendar every year. And oh, me too. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's something I look forward to, I, you know, I'll, when by Olympia sends me that email that Nikki's calendar is on the I know, way. I get it's three like... so I can <laughs> give two as gifts. And... <laughs> they're, they're wonderful, but just seeing, I, actually it was really fun to read about Nikki and Jay and the life that they have created for themselves. But you did that with kind of across the board from woodworkers to shoemakers to, and Eric, I know you had a, a couple that you were really attracted to um, segments of the book. So um, maybe talk about like how it got as broad as it did um, and where that idea came from and how you, how, how you put that together. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a scientific process. I mean, okay. I knew <laughs> the, the thesis and I, I recognized pretty early on that I could, that, you know, making by hand, um, making special, making the ordinary extraordinary is something that's gone on throughout human history in every corner of the world. So how could I, I had to ask, like, how, how can I create some boundaries around this that makes sense? I could write this book for the rest of my life and not really chip the surface of it. So I just realized I had to write about my journey. You know, that was it. It had to just be defined by my particular journey, which wasn't meant to be like the universal statement about this topic. Um, and for that, you know, I just kind of followed my impulses, inquired about things that interested me and, and then kind of latched on to people and ideas that resonated for me. Of course, I was thinking about trying to have different media, trying to have people of different age groups, people of different backgrounds, um, and people in different parts of this country. And to some extent, the world, I, you know, I didn't have the ability financially or time-wise to travel everywhere I'd want to go, which is pretty much everywhere. Um, <laughs> but I did come up, you know, I did get the chance to, to travel to some places. And I, I went to India and I went to Mexico and I went to France and Sweden and England. And so, you know, I, I feel like I've always been a good writer, as I told you, I'm really interested in handwork as an expression of kind of humanity the writing is is like this ticket I have that allows me to like venture deeply into people's lives because I can call them or email them and say like, Hey, I'm writing this book. And I was wondering if I could come over. <laughs> so that's kind of how I approached it. I think now, you know, the book is broken down into five chapters and I didn't know what the chapters would be when I started. But as I said, I was just kind of following my instincts. And once I was able to, when I had enough done to figure out what the chapters were, it made really good sense to me. So I'll tell you what the chapters are. So it's not like a mystery. Um, but I'm kind of amazed when I go through it and think like, wow, I, I hit upon the main points without knowing what the main points were when I started. So the first chapter is called remembering and it's, it's about connecting with the practices of our ancestors and with the natural world. Then there's slowing down, which is easing our pace rather than trying to adapt to the speed of machines. 
And these are, I should point out, these, the chapters are all based on what we stand to gain by making by hand. So remembering, slowing down. The third one is joining hands, which is gathering with others who share our passion, becoming part of a continuum of makers. Then making a home, which is creating comfort and meaning in the places we inhabit and feeling at home in our own skin. And finally, finding a voice, which is exploring and discovering a satisfying means of self-expression that helps us live true to our passion and values. You know, I tried to trust the process. And in this case, it, it, I feel like it worked. And so in each chapter, you know, the book begins with uh, information about me and how I got to the point where I was able to write, had the idea to write the book, was able to write it. Then there's an interview with Ellen Dasanayaki about art and evolution. And then the different chapters all have profiles of, of different makers. Um, and some people, some profiles could have moved into different categories because they weren't just one thing, of course, but those were the categories that, that I put them in. <laughs> and I will say Nikki and JT could sort of be the poster children for the book because they really live so true to their values and so connected to their hands and to their uh, curiosity and to the natural rhythms of the world around them. So I wanted to find terms here because uh, we keep on saying making by hand. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's important to understand what making by hand means and what it means in terms of your interpretation of it, because certainly uh, in Robin R's lives, we use a lot of machines, mm -hmm. everything from computers to, you know, to saws and other hand tools, right. which are more hand. And some weavers use what, what is it? The Jacquard looms, the, you know, the computer driven CNC driven looms. And I all can, in, in my lexicon, that's all made by hand mm -hmm. because it starts with the idea and it works to your hands, whether your hands are working a keyboard, whether they're turning the off on switch to a, a saw, the germination is in your, goes from your brain to your hands, but define that term made by hand, at least in your concept of it a little better for us so that we're. Yeah, I, I would say that it definitely, um, a lot of gray area in what handwork means and what, you know, people will call handwork. Everybody decides for themselves. I think that, you know, there's very few things that we make without any tools. I was thinking about it and I thought, well, I guess like a pinch pot in pottery, you just have your clay in your hands. So your hands are your tool. But, you know, if you're knitting, you have two needles. If you're sewing, you have one needle. And um, if you're making a spoon, you have your carving a spoon, you have your knife. I think that um, if you're, the majority of your work is done by a machine, by like if you're pressing a button or voicing a command to a computer and that is, you know, the majority of your work, you know, is that handwork? Well, there is handwork involved. I never thought of like clicking on a keyboard as handwork, but you know, you could say that because if you were playing the piano, I mean, but then you're using your hands, your fingers are making a sound, which is then that is the creative expression. But if a machine, if you're hitting a computer and the machine is doing it for you, in more than half of your work, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I definitely um, thought about this. There's one person in the book, 
who does um, letterpress and like she comes up with the design and then she sends it to a company which then creates, I forget what the word is, but you know, in a computerized system creates like the the mold, that's not the right word, but that then is used in the letterpress. Um, I think plate is the word. Plate, yes, that's the word. And so, you know, that was a question for me, like, where do you draw the line? And, you know, on my journey, I had probably this line somewhere in my head <laughs> about it. When it changes with different artists, like, you know, for mm -hmm. um, you profile a wood turner and, mm -hmm. you know, he's got a he turns on the lathe, but then the rest of it's really done by his bodily control. Yeah. And like when I use a table saw, you know, I turn on the table saw, but the rest of it's dependent on me. Yeah, the table saw is assisting me. But right. if I wasn't there to do the work, you know, it, it'd still be one piece of wood. <laughs> right. I think about a lot with like, I in the past, I did a lot of hand sewing. And then more recently, I've been doing more machine sewing. You know, I was like, well, I guess I call that handwork. But my hands are on the materials. Well, and you're guiding it through the sewing machine. Yeah. Versus like, um, maybe programming it and then just walking away. Yeah, and I guess that, to me, in terms of the way I think about handwork and the way I divide it up in the book into sort of like what we stand to gain, I think when, if you tap a button and walk away, you're, what you're gaining is a little bit different. I don't want it to come off as a judgment of it. I think a lot of people sort of debate this. Yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> it just goes around in circles. And I, although I haven't, I, I know that there was a woodworker, I think David Pye, who's, mm -hmm. is that it? and he wrote about, like, in an, in an effort to kind of change the dialogue, he wrote about risk and, the you know, another way to sort of, like, assess what you're doing rather than whether you used a machine or not was to talk about, like, high risk versus low risk. So if you're, you know, drawing a line freehand, that's, higher risk than using a ruler and definitely higher risk than doing that on a computer. So it's just kind of like thinking about the same thing, but using different words, which. Yeah. I mean, that's an excellent book, by the way. And yeah, I was just thinking, cause I mean, one of the sections you did is on Peter Korn <laughs> from the center for furniture craftsmanship up in Maine. And uh, he makes the statement that you can't bullshit a chisel mm -hmm. and basically saying the integrity of, of what the integrity of how you build is as important as what you build. As in, I find it, I mean, this is personal, again, no, non judgmental, but I draw no line between handwork and computer work. And it's, it's all of the same in terms of it's all about personal creativity. And I bullshitted a chisel the vast majority of my working career. <laughs> um, Peter Korn would be astonished how dull my chisels are. I use a body grinder. I use whatever I need to do. The integrity is the idea. It is not the, the means of manufacture. Right. And Eric, so your chisel, your grinder became your chisel. <laughs> exactly. So you're, stu you're still espousing that philosophy. Yeah. Or the intention of it. It's uh, whatever tool fits the need. I guess there's the, I, I, I really reject purity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I didn't interpret that phrase as literally as you did um everything doesn't have to be perfect 
I think it's more the idea, like, and we'll have to talk to Peter to really find out what he meant. But, you know, for me, it was uh -huh. the idea that there's so much artifice in the world, but that won't necessarily work in hand joinery, you know, in the wood shop. When you're there, you know, to you need to make things honestly, whether that's with a chisel or a grinder or something else, you, you know, you can't cheat or hide the truth of how it was made. And that seems like a really important lesson that extends far beyond woodworking that some people unfortunately don't seem to learn. It's, I think, you know, crafting with quote unquote integrity is worthwhile, but not essential, but sort of being honest with yourself about what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're presenting it to the world is really important. That's an excellent point. Cause I think, uh, I think being honest with yourself and how you present yourself, I think, is is as important to any object as as the actual making of it. Well, and think about our politics today. I mean, like, yeah, send those old white guys into the wood shop, <laughs> have them <laughs> learn some uh, honesty. Hey, the only one that did it good was uh, Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he actually was a woodworker and had a wood shop. <laughs> right, and and. Obviously, he's the least liked of the presidents because he was so honest. Right. We, 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 won't, we won't jump into uh, George W.'s painting. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm glad he's not a woodworker. He, he did paint a mean still life-ish. Yeah. <laughs> but. Well, I'm glad to know that he's painting. I'm glad to know that he's painting versus probably, like, going hunting. Yeah. You know? I'd, I mean... Sylvester Stallone's painting, Jim Carrey's painting. What a great way for these mega superstars to express their joy. Yeah. Or frustration or anger or whatever. It's like people are were giving Jim Carrey a hard time for painting because they were so ugly. And I'm like, he's doing it. And just the sheer honesty and the fact that he's doing it is brilliant and just gorgeous. Well, and I think that the value of you know, painting or handwork or creative expression yeah. in general is very much like what it brings to the person doing it. Mm -hmm. And whether that work is pretty or ugly or Definitely. high quality or low quality, or whether it's on at a museum or demanding a lot of money to me is irrelevant. Absolutely. In terms Absolutely. of, yeah, it's the value that it brings to the person doing it. And I think that's where, you know, things get really weird in our culture because, and that's sort of why handwork um, is often sort of marginalized or minimalized, you know, or because, oh, well, if, if you're not going to make a lot of money doing it or you're not going to get prestige from it, why bother? Like people didn't pay attention to Banksy until he destroyed his artwork selling it at Sotheby's. And then all of a sudden he's like the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. But why wasn't he before? I mean, I remember seeing his work when I was in London in 2009 before people really caught on and outside of the UK. Mm -hmm. And it was cool to see it on a street corner right. and an alley. And, but then it turned into like this value driven thing. Yeah, yeah, which I think becomes sort of exclusionary and it makes a lot Very of much. certainly adults stop doing creative things 
because because there is this like hierarchy about it and there's this idea that you know as i said like if you're not making money or you're not getting prestige from it that it doesn't have value and that's such a shame yeah like the expect expectations now are much higher so it's like oh why would i i can't do that why would i even try right but the thing is like there are all sorts of things that that are good for us that we don't question like we aspire or do eat nutritionally we you know we know nutrition and exercise are really like important in terms of our health and wellness and so is creative expression and i i'm kind of on a mission to to sort of say like let's equate them equally let's not look at the finished product and the money or prestige that that delivers let's look at the process. And when somebody jogs, people don't say, well, are you going to be in a marathon or are you going to be in the Olympics? Because if not, why bother? Let's talk a little about then uh, making and history and the connection between the, the, the past, the present and the future in terms of what are some of the valuable historical connections in making? And what, is the, and what do you see as the, the, the future importance of making? So I look at human history and um, think about the fact that, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, making by hand was key to survival. Making the ordinary extraordinary seems to go back as far as making anything. So sort of making things special seems to be a human impulse to show that something is important. And so then we had like hundreds of thousands of years like that. And then we had the Industrial Revolution, which changed everything because we started relying on machines to do a lot of things. And machines can run 24-7, you know, whereas before the making process was based upon um, certainly like a human rhythm of, you know, being awake and being asleep and, and seasonal rhythms. And that became less and less necessary in you know, an industrial world to sort of live by those natural rhythms. And in reaction to the Industrial Revolution, we had the arts and crafts movement, which brought attention back to sort of the values of making by hand, making special, etc. Um, and making, you know, caring about quality and aesthetics in the everyday. And then moving forward, we had the digital revolution, which got us to the point where like, we barely even need our hands <laughs> to um, to sort of do things and that we use our fingers as our main touch point to do things, to get information, to communicate. And so it makes sense that we would have what, you know, I call like the DIY renaissance as a follow up to the um, digital revolution, because there is this longing to to connect with more than a keypad or a phone screen, which I realized recently, actually, at least on my devices, feels similar to being numb. Like if you touch your phone screen, which Steve Jobs, you know, went to so much effort to make like that special glass, it it's similar to what you feel like if you hurt your finger and it was numb and you touch something. So that's probably as, you know, the least amount of tactility that I can imagine. And I think that we disconnect from our hands and from the tactile world and from in-person interactions at our own peril. 
I think all of that sort of touch and in-person interaction and sort of learning how to make things that we might not need for our physical survival, but we perhaps, or I think we need for, or is helpful for our emotional wellness, develops like a, a sense of empathy for ourselves, for the other people around us and for the natural world. And so to be more specific, just in terms of my life and where this journey started significantly for me, if you talk, think about knitting. So I became a knitter and then I became curious about other knitters. And then I sort of became curious about in particular women and women's lives. And, and so then I was able to look at history from a different perspective. Then I started looking at, um, landscape like oh we have all these different kind of wool well why do we have these different kinds of wool well there's different kinds of sheep different kinds of sheep live in different places that is based on what they can you know how they can survive in that with that particular landscape also historically like which countries invaded and what kind of livestock did they bring with them and then you know including what kind of sheep and then as I sort of delve into knitting more, I think like, well, where does this color from come from? Well, there's all these chemicals that we can make color from, but then there's also all these plants that we can make color from. And then I start thinking about, oh, well, I care about the sheep's health and I care about the plant's health and I, our environment. And I care about the health of the people who are knitting those sweaters in you know, other countries where labor is so cheap and the time that they're spending and how much they're being compensated for it. So there's this thing, knitting, you know, that seems like it's just two sticks in a string and you just make a fabric. But for me, it kind of made me care so much about the makers who came before me, the makers today and, and, and the environment and all of those things. So I think whatever we're making and you two do woodworking so that develops your empathy for other woodworkers, but also for the trees. Yeah. It's way more than just wood and glue. Yeah. You know, the, thinking about it the same way that you're talking about knitting. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's a, there's so, there's a whole world around just the, the concept of making a table. Right. And then like, as you become more familiar with your materials and your tools and the processes, you know, when you go to Home Depot and I would, I mean, I always wonder about this, like when people say like pressure treated wood and like this wood, won't, ugh, you ugh. know, and it, you think like, well, what is, what is in that and what's oh, it doing awful. for the environment and <laughs> yeah. what am I breathing in because of that? Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that we, you know, go backwards and like, oh, we should, not rely on modern technology or innovation in terms of materials, but I'm saying that when you do handwork, you develop an empathy for all of this and a concern for all of it. And in terms of how we move forward, which I think was part of your question, um, and, and I said, like, if we ignore all of this, we do this at our own peril um, because I think if we can all become more sensitive to this, I think the world we live in will be a better place for us as individuals, community members, and citizens of the planet. Hello, Why Makers. We have decided to split this episode into two parts. Make sure to listen for the next episode to hear the rest of our conversation with Melanie Fallick. 
Thanks for listening. We would like to thank our Patreon donors, including our thank you maker, Kristen Damholt, our t-shirt makers, Chris Bowman, Alex Zorn, Maggie Sasso-Jones, Allison True, Ryan Hills, Jason Snyder, and Johanna Zorn. Our question maker, Rick Schwartz, and our sustaining makers, Mark Del Judas and Cliff Whitehouse. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.